And the Old Testament reading is from Isaiah, chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sherejashub, your son, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria and Ephraim and the son of Remaliah had devised evil against you, saying, Let's go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people, and the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What ancient hope, it's good to be with you this morning <clears throat> on this first Sunday of, of Advent and in honor of Advent, as you can tell, we're, we're taking a break from our series on Matthew, and we'll be spending this time in Isaiah, looking at a number of, of prophecies that are fulfilled in the coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, before we turn to this text, let us come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us and your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, that even long before his coming, you promised, you promised his coming. You promised what he would do. And Lord, as we look at this promise from so long ago, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear it with new ears, to see it with new eyes, 
as we come to appreciate your gospel. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, Isaiah, as a prophet, he was a prophet to the southern kingdom um, in Judah, and he began his role as a prophet in the year that King Uzziah died, either 740 or 739 B.C. And Isaiah actually continued in that prophetic ministry through the reigns of three successive kings. It actually might be the case that he was a prophet for as long as 60 years. And we don't know, but he might have been a member of the royal family, and, and the eloquence of his Hebrew would certainly point to much learning and education. And during his ministry as a prophet, he saw many things. For instance, in 722, he will see the northern kingdom of Israel fall to Assyria. Isaiah ministered at a time of much upheaval, in a time of much turmoil. But he proclaims God's enduring goodness and graciousness and holiness amidst a world that seems to be falling apart. And as Isaiah will remind us, the world always seems like that. And it's certainly true of this situation that Isaiah here speaks into in chapter 7. In this passage, Isaiah comes and he addresses the unfaithful king Ahaz. And Ahaz is, is fearful. Ahaz is terrified of this alliance between Assyria and the northern kingdom of, of Israel. And this is the Israel that was the very people with whom Judah used to be one nation. And together, Syria and Israel, they plan to attack Judah and then replace Ahaz with a puppet king. And so militarily speaking, things look very grim for Judah. And it's in to this threat that we find one of the most famous prophecies in all of Scripture. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Strictly speaking, however, the, the Hebrew here does not necessarily mean virgin. It speaks of a young maiden. It's, it's a more general term than, than virgin, but it can include virgin. Just like the term doctor is a more general term than pediatrician. And as we see, this is not the whole story. This points to a virgin birth. There will be a virgin birth, but we have to trace some other ground before we get there. The prophecy continues. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you tread will be deserted. And so what are we to make of this? Because clearly there's some kind of immediate fulfillment to this prophecy that concerns Syria and Israel. And, and, and this is how I believe we should go about this. In the immediate context, Isaiah is telling Ahaz that life will go on as usual. As in life during peacetime, a young maiden will give birth to a boy. And before the boy is old enough to make a conscious choice about anything, 
the combined military threats of Syria and Israel will be eliminated. And that's exactly what happens. God preserves and protects his people, and he brings the plans of Syria and Israel to ruin. But what kind of sign is this? And why would this sign, this kind of sign, be called Emmanuel? Well, I believe it's because this sign shows an, initia, an essential act of trust in God's goodness, in God's gracious, graciousness, and his sovereignty. Because what does trust in God look like in the face of an approaching military catastrophe? Well, it's the earnest, diligent performance of an ordinary, faithful life. In this case, in this example, it's getting married and having children. And so what is the sign of Emmanuel? What is the sign of God with us? It's that even when the world may seem to be collapsing around us, we are to go about faithfully living the proper human life. To say, for instance, I'll never have children because I could never bring children into this world is to say that we don't trust God to provide a place for future humans to flourish. It's to say that God is not with us. It's to say that God has abandoned us. Take, for instance, a letter that the pastor and martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to his fiancée, Maria von Wedemeyer, from the confines of a Nazi prison cell. Bonhoeffer writes, When I consider the state of the world, the total obscurity enshrouding our personal destiny, and my present imprisonment, our union can only be a token of God's grace and goodness, which summons us to believe in him. That requires faith, and may God grant it to us daily. I don't mean the faith that flees the world, but the faith that endures in the world and loves and remains true to the world in spite of all the hardships it brings us. Our marriage must be a yes to God's earth. It must strengthen our resolve to do and accomplish something on earth. I fear that Christians who venture to stand on earth on only one leg, will stand in heaven on only one leg, too. This is trust in God. This is God with us. For various reasons, we may marry or we may not. We may have children or we may not. God may call us to very different things. But the fear of the people of Syria of ruthless regimes, of economic markets, of the sensationalized reports of 24-hour news channels, of the corrosive and polarizing rhetoric of social media, the fear of these things is no reason to refuse the good gifts of God. We don't refuse the joys of family and friends and good work and deep investment into your present community because you fear people and what they can do. To do this is not to say God is with us, but to say God has abandoned us. Perhaps you think the world around you is collapsing. Perhaps you don't. Either way, do not cease to cultivate the responsibilities and the privileges of an ordinary, faithful life. Whatever happens around us does not alter the basic charge of what our good and gracious and sovereign God has called us to. And this can be easy to forget. 
And few have put this point better than C.S. Lewis in his, his sermon to students at Oxford during World War II, a sermon entitled Learning During Wartime. He's talking here to young men and women who are undergoing the greatest military conflict that the world has ever seen, and he's speaking to them as an injured combat veteran of the trench warfare of World War I. And Lewis encourages these students to hold fast to their everyday responsibilities that are set before them, in their case, responsibilities of studying. All those on the front, Lewis contends, must do this whatever their work or vocation. And Lewis reminds us here, while war aggravates the hard realities of life, it does not ultimately change these difficult realities. And Lewis tells us that wartime actually helps us better understand life in peacetime. Lewis asks, why is it so hard to perform our daily duties during wartime? And Lewis says one reason is that we keep thinking that our real work, our real purpose, well, it can't start until the war is over. But as Lewis points out, if we let ourselves, we shall always be waiting for some distraction or other to end before we can really get down to our work. Even in peacetime, there are many temptations to take an after that mentality. I'll start doing that after so-and-so happens. Once work lightens up, after that, I'll give family the attention that they need. After I finish all of my household projects, then I'll have the time to meet my neighbors. After my kids are finished with all of their extracurricular activities, after that, we'll have time to plug into the church community. Once the conflict with Israel and Syria is over, after that, then will have children. The problem, though, is that the after that mentality constantly keeps us from the daily privileges and responsibilities of the ordinary Christian life. As Lewis warns, favorable conditions never come. If we keep waiting until we have enough money, enough time, enough professional seniority, enough of any particular resource, we will always be waiting. But, but, but surely if we undertook something during the impending military threat of Israel and Syria, then there's a good chance that all of our efforts would be cut short. Yes, but this is also true of any human life. As Lewis insists, you would be surprised if you knew how soon one begins to feel the shortness of the tether of how many things, even in middle life, we have to say no time for that, too late now, and not for me. Life is shorter than we think. No one completes all that they mean to, and even the longest life will end with innumerable beginnings that never have a finish. This is just the inevitable frustration of human life in its present condition. Yes, we think, I'm only here in Iowa City for a very short time, only until I graduate from my program. So for that reason, I'm going to hold back from really getting to know people. I'm going to hold back from really forming friendships. I'm going to hold back from really committing to a church. Otherwise, it'll only end in frustration when I have to say goodbye. 
I'll just wait until I move, and, and, then, and then I'll really make friends, and then I'll really dig into a community. But as per Lewis's logic, even the longest friendships face a certain goodbye. On this side of Christ's second coming, even the very longest relationships are cut short. As Lewis points out, we can never, either in peace or wartime, know the future. It is always in God's hands. Yes, we will plan wisely, but all the while we will wisely hold these thoughts with loose hands, knowing that God will bring about what he sees fit. The danger then is to defer the important work of ordinary life from the present to the future. As Lewis warns, the present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. Yes, it's true that I don't see my family because I work so much now, but because of this, I'll have an early retirement, and then I'll be able to spend all day with them. Yes, I don't know them now, but think about how well I'll know them once I retire. But you don't understand, if Syria and Israel come against us, then there's a good chance that we'll face death. When Lewis here, not meaning to be harsh, he reminds us that war does not increase the percentage of people who die. He points out that this is always right at 100%. However, it certainly pushes many deaths tragically to an earlier age, and it does bring death hard upon our attention. And so war makes us realize and confront death in a way that's easy to ignore in peacetime. Lewis writes, war makes death real to us. And that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the Christians of the past. They thought it good for us to be aware always of our mortality. I'm inclined to think that they were right. All the animal life in us, all schemes of happiness that centered in this world were always doomed to a final frustration. In ordinary times, only a wise man can realize it. We see here unmistakably the sort of universe in which we had all along been living and must come to terms with it. Yes, those in Judah may face an earlier death because of the possibility of war. And death is a horrible thing. It's not what God intends for humanity. But in a fallen world, death is a certain thing for all of us. And it may come quicker than we think. Death may meet us suddenly through sickness or accident or emergency. The Christian is promised resurrection in the life to come, but we are not necessarily promised a long life in the present. As Lewis warns, we are constantly forgetting about death, constantly exalting our ability to control the future, and constantly ignoring the God who orchestrates all things for our good and for his glory. But here we have to mention that this good is our conformity to the image of Christ. God does not promise us a long life or comfortable circumstances, but God does promise with the utmost surety to use all that happens to us to conform us into Christ, to make us look like Christ. 
And where is it that we become like Christ? Well, it's in the mundane, ordinary moments, in all of those things that we so easily defer from the present. So then, what is the most important thing that we can do to give ourselves to slow and steady acts of love in a committed community, regardless of what the future may hold? To do this day in and day out is to say in every act, Emmanuel, God is with us. Because if God is not with us in our daily duties, if he's not with us in our prayer and email and commuting and laundry and meeting neighbors and cultivating friendships, then God is not with us. This is our life. And if God is not with us in these ordinary tasks that are daily before us, then quite simply, God is not with us. Like Judah, we don't know what the future holds, but going forward, in Bonhoeffer's words, we must say yes to God's earth with both of our feet planted squarely upon it. Again, God will deliver Judah, but one day Judah will fall to Babylon. Yet through it all, we have to remember and Judah must remember that all is gift. Everything is from God's good and gracious hands. And toward that end, notice what the child is pictured as eating. Curds and honey. Why is this important? Well, because when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush, when God first comes to Moses and tells him of his plan to rescue the Hebrew people, God says this. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God meets Moses, and God tells him that he will deliver the people from Egyptian slavery, and he will give them a land that's flowing with milk and honey. What is it that characterizes this land in God's first encounter with Moses? It's milk and honey. And what is this child in Isaiah 7 pictured as eating? Well, curds, which is a milk product, and honey. The very diet of this child reminds the people that what they are and where they are is because of God's deliverance of them from the might of Egypt. God is reminding them that everything, absolutely everything, is a gift. Your very existence as a people is because of me. You have received all from my good and gracious hand. And this child's diet, it characterizes this land that I have given to you. Do we really believe that everything is a gift? We don't know the future. We have so much less control than we think we do. We have no idea what will even happen a year from now. And in this present life, our greatest plans in some way, shape, or form will be frustrated by death. Yet we have everything as a gift. Everything is curds and honey. We have all as the daily bread from our good and gracious God. And we do well to pour out our hearts before God. We are right to seek the good gifts of God in this life. However, 
And I say this with trepidation. We're not promised the life that we want, but we are promised the life that we need. The life that will form us into what God intends us to be. Ahaz was right to seek deliverance from Judah's military threat, and we too are right to play, pray for deliverance from the things that burden us. And if God answers our prayers, let us receive those acts of deliverance with gladness and gratefulness. But let us also remember that these deliverances do not address our chief problem. Our chief problem is the sin and the pride that separates us from God. If, as Ahaz thinks, his main problem is this military alliance, then perhaps all he needs is a stronger alliance than his enemies. But his main problem is actually much worse, and the solution is much greater than more military might. Look at the exchange before this prophecy of Emmanuel. The Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Ahaz tells, Oziah, tells Isaiah, I'm much too dignified for a sign from God. I don't need all that the Lord is willing to give me. I don't need to see his greatness. I don't need any help with my unbelief. Let's not take this religious thing too far. Just defeat my enemies and I'll be fine. Just get me out of my present predicament and then, God, I will be on my way. But God sees through this and he finds it a great weariness. This very disposition, this pride, this pride, this is Ahaz's greatest problem. And so Isaiah declares to him, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Because you are so prideful as to not want a sign, I will give you a sign. And this is not just true of Ahaz, but this is true for each and every one of us. This is because the sign that we receive is not at first a pleasing sign. As the Lord tells us, this sign reaches all the way down to Sheol. But the birth of this child during wartime, it, it doesn't descend all the way to Sheol, and, and neither does it ascend to heaven. And so the birth of this child under the reign of Ahaz, it cannot be the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Again, the, the Hebrew word here for maiden, it, it can denote a virgin, just as the word doctor can denote a pediatrician. But even here, there's an anticipation that this ultimately points to a virgin birth. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, which actually precedes the birth of Christ by almost 300 years, it's this, what we find quoted in Matthew. And the Septuagint here speaks specifically of a virgin. This fact shows us that this is how the Jewish tradition read and anticipated the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy. Yes, God is with us in the birth of this child in wartime, 
And this itself is an act of trusting in God when the world seems to be falling apart. But the ultimate Emmanuel is something different. It is God with us in a much deeper and fuller way. And so who is this Emmanuel? Well, in Matthew 1, the angel comes to Joseph, a man betrothed to Mary, who has become pregnant as a virgin by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the angel says to Joseph, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And Matthew, commenting on this account, says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. The true Emmanuel, the true God with us, is the child in Mary's womb. And we're also told that this child will be named Jesus, which means the Lord saves. This child is not ultimately promised to save us from Syria or any other thing that we think is our main problem. But as the angel tells us, he's purposed to save us from our sins. The name Jesus tells us that God saves us from our sins. And the name Emmanuel tells us how God will do it. How is this child God with us? This child is God become human. Christ is God the Son taking a human nature upon himself. This child is God with us as us. He is with us by becoming one of us. But how is it that this would save us from the enemy of sin? Well, again, the foundational problem of our sin is pride. It's actually the irony that we don't want God with us. God is our creator. God upholds our very being every second that we exist. He orchestrates his life as he sees fit. And God does this with the greatest wisdom and love and goodness. But still, God does this. And that means that if this is God with us, then we are not our own. However, the very basis of sin is to seek to be God in God's place, to decide by ourselves, for ourselves, what our lives should look like. It is to take the whole existential weight of our existence upon our own shoulders. But are we sure we want to bear this weight? In contrast to God with us, the existential philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, he speaks of us as being, quote, abandoned by God. He contends that God does not exist, and so, quote, man is therefore without any support or help, condemned at all times to invent man. This for Sartre is what it means to be abandoned, to have no appeal whatsoever to God, and so to carry the complete weight of one's own existence on one's own shoulders. You become responsible for absolutely everything in your life. You have been abandoned by a God who never actually existed, and now you are burdened with the whole weight of your existence. 
If our life is not centered upon God with us, but upon me with myself, then we must bear all of this. As Lewis reminds us, however, we don't know nor can we control the future. All of our greatest aims will be frustrated and unfulfilled in some way in this present life. And eventually all of us will die, be it suddenly or slowly. And so if God is not with us, Sartre is right, then we are truly abandoned. We're forced to carry a weight that we have no way of bearing. We're forced to take control of a life that is vastly outside of our own control. This is not just God with us, but this is the crushing weight of us as God. And if this is the case, we're not just forced to ask why marry or have children or give ourselves to good work or close friendships or community. We're ultimately forced to ask, why even get out of bed in the morning? But if God is with us, then like Ahaz, we are not allowed to define our greatest problem. If Christ is God with us, then our greatest problem is that we don't want God with us. And so just like Ahaz, our greatest problem is not Syria, but sin seeking to be God in God's place, and it gets worse. Like Ahaz, God with us is a sign that we would rather not see. Again, the sign of God with us is God as us, and the reason that God is as us is a humbling reason, because this sign is God the Son becoming human and living the perfect life of love before God and neighbor in our place. This sign is God telling us that we are so lost in our sin that God himself must come to us and live the life that we should have lived. This sign is God doing what we should have done. This sign is showing us that he must live the human life that we cannot. This sign is God revealing to us our existential futility. But there's even more here that we'd rather not see. Christ also suffers the punishment of God's wrath and human death upon the cross, the punishment that he, not, sorry, that, that not he, but we deserve. And so when we look at this sign, we see that by our own efforts, we are helpless and hopeless. We see both how much sin has weakened us and how truly horrible sin is. It's so horrible that it merits the wrath of the cross. On the cross, Christ truly took the whole burden of fallen human existence. We cannot bear this weight. Sartre cannot bear this weight. But Christ can and did bear this weight. And so this sign, as Isaiah tells us, reaches all the way down to Sheol. In the words of the Apostles' Creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. Christ descended to Sheol, to the place of the dead. Christ experienced the death that we deserve. This sign is the full disclosure of what each of us in our sin has earned. 
But this is not all that we see. Yes, this sign shows us that we are lost, but it also shows us the great lengths that God will go to save us. Christ does this for our salvation. Christ does this to save us from our sins. That's why his name is Jesus. And so when we look to Christ, we see both the depths of our own sin and also the greater depths of God's love for us. It isn't until we see the salvation of Christ that we actually come to see the full shape of our sin, what sin actually is. As John Stott writes, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man, and he puts himself where only man deserves to be. This sign is the sign that in sin, we have falsely tried to make ourselves like God, and that in salvation, God has truly made himself like us. This is the sign of Christ, of Emmanuel, of God with us. But as Isaiah tells us, this sign also reaches as high as heaven. And this brings us back to the Apostles' Creed. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Christ, Emmanuel, the sign of God, descends to Sheol, but then he is raised from the dead and he ascends to heaven, to the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And one day he will come again. He will come and he will set the whole world right. On that day there will be no war or death. There will be no end to friendships or joy or gladness. There will be no end to our communion with God and neighbor. There will be no more saying, well, after that. Because when Christ returns, all good things will have arrived in full. And at present, if we place our faith in him, receiving his righteousness and giving him our guilt, he truly is our Emmanuel, God with us, God with every bit of who we are are. He is with us and he fellowships with us in the deep recesses of our body and soul because he himself has assumed the fullness of the human body and the human soul. God is with us as us. This is the sign of Emmanuel. Let us pray. God our Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are with us as we go about our days, fulfilling the vocations, the tasks, the privileges, the responsibilities that you have called us to. And Lord, most of all, we thank you that you are with us in the most intimate way possible, in Christ Jesus, who became like us for our salvation. In Christ's name we pray, amen.